Welcome to the Bible Archives, and today we're going to finish our exploration of Genesis chapter 30. Last episode was kind of a break from our normal pattern where um, we looked at a text that falls in line with the chronology of uh, Genesis, but we really diverted. We, we went into a direction on theodicy and suffering and several times throughout Genesis and then again throughout the entire Hebrew Bible and even into the New Testament, this issue of uh, sovereignty versus free will versus the nature of God, is that good? Is there anything that's vindictive there? Um, and what does this mean about evil and suffering in the world? So this, this conversation on theodicy, it comes up all the time. So we figured we would handle it because Genesis chapter 30 begins with that conversation. Uh, Rachel's kind of off that she has not given Jacob any any children. She envies her sister um, and says, give me children or I shall die. And Jacob's response brings up that conversation. Jacob says, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So that's all we covered last episode. Um, and that conversation is fine on its own. That also needs to be kept in mind as you continue to go through Genesis 30. You don't want to just leave that off to the side and forget about it. But all of that aside, in contrast to what I just said, we're going to move forward now with Genesis chapter 30 and see how, how else this narrative unfolds. So try to keep the suffering, um, the barrenness, how is God involved in all of that. Try to keep that in mind. That's still playing a role here. And you're going to see that kind of culminate as this chapter ends. Um, but how does Jacob and Rachel respond to all of this? One of the things we see as we go through these chapters in Jacob is there's a lot of folkloric motifs here that deal with things like the uh, the hero's journey, the younger son, older son uh, conflicts and things like that that I think are going to reveal themselves more and more as we go along in this. And then some some folkloric, um, perhaps you could even call them magical motifs that kind of indicate to us maybe how old some of these stories really could be. And if you remember uh, the, the overview of Genesis that we did, a lot of what Israel, as the Hebrew Bible is getting composed, a lot of what they're doing is stealing. Mm -hmm, they're stealing right. from different narratives, different uh, cultural motifs, but just general general ideas. And so knowing those sources, knowing the works that existed before Israel that they're utilizing, that's really helpful. At the same time, um, a, good, a good technique to bring up as we approach this chapter is read it from their perspective. And a lot of times we read, we read a text, whether that's a New Testament, Hebrew Bible, mm -hmm. and we're looking at it for, as, you know, 21st century Americans. Right. Um, and, and whatever lenses that we, we have. So it's always helpful when you're reading a biblical narrative to try to put your lens down and read it as much from that ancient world as possible and then bring that all together for your current, your contemporary perspective. Sure. And this is an example of it. Yeah, chapter. sure. Yeah. There's there's even you can maybe see a shift from the way uh, God was worshipped. So Yahweh worship may have been a little bit different even between the two households. Maybe there's a move from a monolatrist to monotheistic way of thinking. And I think we talked about that a little bit last mm -hmm. week. Um, so to answer that question, how does Jacob and Rachel respond? Well, pragmatically, 
the dialogue that is happening here is very similar to Sarah's first response dealing with children, covenant, and all of that. And and we got to uh, see how Sarah interacted with the, the necessity of continuing the covenantal line. Rachel also has the added factor. So, so it sounds similar to Sarah, but Rachel has the added factor of being the, the primary spouse, but in competition with her sister who has had the firstborn child now. And, and in fact, uh, we, we know this, that Jacob's first four children are from Rachel's sister. And there's been this ongoing uh, like back and forth competition kind of since we met these two characters. And so for Rachel, if something doesn't happen, she's going to be removed from the household of the covenantal ca- uh, family. If she doesn't produce an error in this conversation, she's out. So, so know that that's kind of on the line. And so that's coming in and then enter the handmaiden's tale. Hmm. Qu- quite literally, I think uh, the creators of that show actually used the context as Genesis for inspiration. Uh, oh. Don't, don't quote me on that, but I, wouldn't I, be surprised. I remember reading that they actually used Genesis to, to help them conceive of how some of those processes work. Um, so have that in your mind, I guess, as you read, because in verse three, uh, it says that um, her maid, Rachel's maid, Bilhah, is going to be brought unto her. And the English says, go unto her, um, or different translations might have that uh, phrase differently. Um, but remember, this idea of unto, into, that's not as overtly sexual in Hebrew, Um and, and also you have the word leah here, which is similar to other ways we've seen um, these encounters talked about in Genesis. But the, the whole goal of this is that she may bear upon my knees and that I too may have children through her. I don't know. Do we need to go into any of the context of what this um, looks like? I don't think so. Okay. I mean, I think I think most people can imagine what okay. this is going on here. A, a, yeah. a very physical representation of the one person mm-hmm. appearing as if they are um, in the act and right. bearing the child while it's very obviously a subordinate human a woman in this case is actually, it, you know what? I think we got it. Yep. We're good. So anyways... As a result of this, she becomes a wife or a woman of Jacob and bears, Bilhah does, and bears a son that Rachel can claim. And that's, again, we mm-hmm. kind of not as explicitly saw this with Sarah and Hagar. Um, so as this child is born, there's a very interesting connection here, but um, the child and the bearing of the child is attributed to God's judgment, Okay. And this, it'd be worth pointing out that often we hear God's judgment and we think, oh, a bad thing. Not, not always. Sometimes God's judgment is a good thing. Mm-hmm. So that happens and that God has heard her voice and that should sound familiar to us. So they, uh, Rachel names the child Dan. And this is also the name of a territory that's already been mentioned in Genesis chapter 14. So we've already seen that this is like a place that people are referencing. And here we have a child who is named 
after that place, but that child's also going to become the ancestor of that place. So you're starting to see oh, some yeah. composition issues yeah. here. This is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and technically Dan means judge. So quick rabbit trail. This name is interesting because it becomes a tribe associated with a territory that already exists, but also hints toward Israel's like primitive form of leadership of judges, right? There's a whole book named after that. That judgment is based on God seeing and hearing a barren woman. Now, in the first few chapters of Isaiah, the prophet laments and warns that Israel must restore its judges as it was at first. But what else does Isaiah emphasize? To see and hear. Isaiah is full of these sensory connections, right? And what is the problem when Israel does not see or hear? Well, they forget and abandon the poor, the widow, the orphan, the marginalized, the oppressed, etc. So I see this connection here. And, and again, this is kind of like drawing dots between different books, different time periods, but the, the singular narrative of, of the text that God is saying, you were supposed to judge as God judged. Like when he saw and heard and came down alongside Rachel and Sarah and Hagar and Isaac and even Israel. Like when Israel was in Egypt, it's the same way that's described. And then as you have issues with Assyria and Babylon and the Seleucid Empire and the Romans and so on and so forth. So you will, you know, Isaiah is kind of saying, Israel, you want to set this right? Well, restore your judges and start seeing and hearing again. So that's Dan. Yeah. That's kind of all this package deal with this baby who's going to become this part of the tribe and all. Mm -hmm. Sure. So Dan's born to Bilhah. Um, and that gives Jacob a son that Rachel could claim, all right? But it isn't isn't technically through Rachel. And mm-hmm. we've seen how that has gone before. Yeah, right? for sure, with Ishmael. Yep. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, uh, like very literally, this is a, a, an immense comparison to that situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so here's Dan is a, a child of the patriarch, but there's this asterisk next to it. Um, then Bilhah has another child, Naphtali, named for Rachel's competition with her sister. And and I think that's where there's a wrestling yeah. language used. Yeah. In fact, I, um, reading some commentaries, mentioned that that wrestling language used here between these women actually has something to do with the wrestling that we see later with Jacob and that man, that person, whatever it is going on there. So there's, again, that conflict going on of you know confrontation. And then is it going to reconcile or not? And this is, it's similar to what happened with Sarah and Hagar, except this right. one's way more overt. These are sisters. They've both gone through a similar process together. Right. But it's it's a competition, like a conflict for the title sure. of matriarch. Between siblings. Yeah. And this is kind of a turn of that. Normally the, the confrontation is between two brothers, but here we do yeah. have two sisters. So. Yeah. Um, so that takes us all the way to verse nine. And Leah sees all of this and realizes uh, she needs to respond. So if you're keeping track at home, she's up four to two. She's winning. And the asterisk is on the record uh, for Rachel's two because they're from a stand-in servant. Jacob, meanwhile, is about to acquire woman number four. (laughs) Genesis 30, as it goes, not a great chapter to read if you are hoping for, you know, the elevation of women especially from a modern feminist perspective. Oh, not at all, no. Just steer clear if that's <laughs> what you're that hoping for. Set that aside while you're watching and you're reading this. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and here's the deal. This is all Israel's roots. When we're right. talking about Jacob's children, we're talking about what becomes the 12 tribes of Israel. Yeah. And, and we've seen this before. For most of the ideological narratives of the tribes, the nation states, etc., we would expect a pristine narrative, you know, kind of selling the story, justifying dominancy, giving credibility, you know, able to look at it and go, see, this is pure and true and connect, correct. Israel just kind of comes along with what every other nation state is doing and says, yeah, so the whole thing with us, it's messy. In fact, it's kind of screwed up. And they don't just offer like transparency to that. They emphasize it. Like they keep saying Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, you know, unbarred sexuality, promiscuity, greed, jealousy, pride, deceit. You know, we falsely prostituted matriarchs to gain economic and military (laughs) advantage. We almost sacrificed a kid. We used women and then sent them away, even though our God actually was on their side the whole time. It's just, it's not pretty. And here, the birth, the birth of the 12 tribes, like the foundation of Israel's identity, is this battle between two sisters mm-hmm. just throwing in more wives to gain the child advantage. And Jacob's just going along with it. This, this isn't a great, perfect narrative. No. And, and we have to see the, the importance that has on the story, but also the identity of the covenant. Because it all starts with this esoteric command, like a dream, a vision, and then it gets dysfunctional real quick. And you have to ask, why would Israel allow this? They had full control over the narrative. This breaks all the rules of nationalism and patriotism and, and even mythology, mythology and heritage. And it's not just blatant honesty. And so if they're telling a story where the finite human beings are all a mess, where does Israel's goodness lie? Where does their hope come from? Who is the one making all of this happen if it isn't the people? And that's the point of the story. That's the point of all of these, all of these collections of motifs we see again and again with how messed up Israel are, it is, is it's their God making all of this happen, not the people. That's the emphasis. The people just need to cooperate. They just need to trust. They have to grow more into, you could say, this God's likeness. But it's a really interesting way to craft a cultural identity. And, and I think there's something we can take from this. Like, what does it mean to own the story? Remember the story and then keep moving forward in light of all the messiness of it. Like, Israel's best days are not behind them. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they keep bringing it up. Which means their story is a bit more unromantic than we would think or we would like even. But it's it's quite powerful when you when you see the intention behind it. It's also quite unique um, yeah. because, according to some different scholars that I read, this is a very unusual way to uh, look at your genealogy of your tribes. It's really unique among the ancient Near Eastern um, it's, <clears throat> literature. It's, it's unique even today. Oh, it is. The idea, though, that you are going to have a tribal genealogy where it's like you have one ancestor. I don't think there's any other culture that has like one ancestor who became the, the, the patriarch of the whole tribe. It's just not something that you really see. And so they have kind of this genealogical view of history. So it's like this, this is a human being that has made this tribe of people. And uh, it just makes a really interesting concept that just you don't see very often. And if you look then 
at uh, Matthew and Luke, those two gospels, right? Who, who include a genealogy, emphasizing the same thing, tracing it all the way back, and it also includes all the messed up parts. Exactly. And so that's that's something that you can either look at and go, oh, maybe this is wrong, maybe maybe this is a bad thing, or you go, what are they trying to say, mm-hmm. and what what's the theological implication of it? So, anyways. Rabbit trail's done. Uh, next, we find out there's more kids. And yes. uh, Zilpa comes along. And as a real result of Zilpa, who's who's technically the stand-in now for Leah, God and Asher are born. Um, and then the story just keeps on going. So moving swiftly along, eventually we get to uh, this, this narrative in verse 14. And... Uh, it starts with in the days of the wheat harvest. Yeah. And I think I just want to draw attention to the importance of the agricultural setting here. Um, and if you're tracking with Genesis, right, the whole thing starts with two dirt clods taking care of the earth. Then you have a conflict between brothers who had different agrarian approaches. And now this theme has continued, you know, Jacob's an agriculturalist kept bringing it up again and again. He knows his plants. He knows his animals. Uh, he even knew how to interact with the sheep. There's no mistaking, at least from my reading, that the Bible is an agrarian book. And here, it's it's wheat harvest time. And and it, with, with details in the Bible, you get them and you have to go, why include that? Why not just move on with the story? Why give us that setting? Well, it's intentional. So what can the setting help us understand? And, and particularly of this, this setting, the agricultural revolution is in like full steam in Mesopotamia. And, and more, more the ancient Near East, yes, but specifically Mesopotamia. And this region, it was one of the first to use irrigation. You have these monstrous water systems of the Tigris and Euphrates. And that ability to manipulate the rivers was what allowed them to have this agricultural revolution where they were they were able to start growing different grains, um, cultivating different plants, propagating all of that. So when it says it's the time of the the wheat harvest, we're able to go, oh, and this is within the midst of a time period where they are able to start interacting with plants in a more sustained way. They're not just hunter gatherers anymore. Right. Okay. So that's one thing to to notice about all of this. Um, but as the story continues, we, we meet Reuben. Mm-hmm. And Reuben, one of Leah's offspring, goes out and he finds some mandrakes. Now, I am guessing that most, most of us today uh, are not very familiar with mandrakes. Um, there are also a ton of different kinds of mandrakes that are out there. So the phrase today, from what I understand, um, mandrake kind of encompasses a ton of items that all kind of have generic similarities to them. Um, a host of plants. And oh, they yeah. kind of trace mm-hmm. them back to the singular species. They're all in the nightshade family, but yeah. Um, there's different species, I guess, or subspecies maybe. Varieties might be the word. Yeah. Depends on what culture you're in, because there's some that grow in Europe and some that grow in the ancient Near East, and we even have American which, mandrakes here. Which brings up like, an issue of translation and species identification and 
you know, in one culture's language, they have a word for a plant that's different in another one, but the plants are actually a little bit, it gets very complicated really quickly. It does. Anyways, uh, mandrakes for us are this kind of generic umbrella of a whole bunch of different things. But generally, mandrakes are uh, within some historical literature referred to as an aphrodisiac. Okay, so promotes the potency of love. Well, yes. Although I would say that Rachel probably doesn't really need so much an aphrodisiac here because Rachel does love her best. <laughs> it's more of a problem with she can't have children. Right. And as we're as we're looking at this, um, so maybe we'll give a couple interesting points about mandrakes, how it relates to this narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, one is that mandrakes, at least the ones that are are familiar to the ancient Near East, contain a hallucinogenic chemical that uh, can induce states of make you high. Yeah, well, uh, or also hallucinate. can overdose and be very toxic and deadly. Yes. So Ruben finds some of this and uh, imagine being a teenage man and going like, I've got my hands on some mandrakes. Mm-hmm. I'm totally reading that into the story. But <laughs> And he's uh, looking for the next village girl. <laughs> what 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 does happen is Rachel finds out and Rachel wants them. Yeah. Um and and Leah has and starts interacting with this and claims that well Rachel has already taken away her husband, which is a bit of a subject of claim by Leah, by the way. And so why would she also want to take away her son's mandrakes? And the real answer is obvious because Rachel has yet to physically bear any children with Jacob. So of course she wants them. And and in order for us to kind of understand, like, why is this important to the narrative? It's mandrakes. Well, mandrakes functioned with this kind of role. Yeah, they do. This is a strange interaction. And it might kind of indicate that there's a commonality of ritual practice that is somewhat outside of the worship of Yahweh and the mindset of some of the original tellers of the story. Which, which is all throughout even even sure. into Isaiah, Ezra, Nehemiah, you're still seeing a sort of syncretism. Yeah, right? exactly. And that's what I would call this. Um, mandrakes are used or have been used in what would be called uh, sympathetic magic. And what that means is that things, and this is kind of a folkloric idea, that things that look like things will attract the real things. So the roots of mandrakes do, in fact, have a somewhat human form. And they're used in different kinds of healing, but they are also like, used... You mean human form? They look like... They look human. like a little human. They have like little... Like the roots sort of look as if they yeah. have arms and legs. I think... Uh, oh, my gosh. It, there's a movie with it. I can't, I can't remember what it is. Okay. So, yeah, we have these roots that look like that as a human being. So you would take that little root that looks similar to a human and you would put it under your mattress or under your pillow. And I need not say more. This is in order to attract a baby to you or to attract fertility. Um, and there's a whole lot of folklore that has sprung up about this. Wait, so essentially the mandrake, to use a colloquial metaphor, mm-hmm. is the golden ticket. And Reuben has found the golden ticket. Yeah. Leah wants to keep that out of Rachel's hands. Sure, she doesn't want Rachel to have babies. And Rachel wants that because of what it is culturally, folklorically, uh, has a potential to do. And that, and that's where this really comes into what's going on with the narrative, um, because the dialogue that begins to take place between Leah and Rachel leads to this other strange dialogue with Leah and Jacob. And what happens as a result, they they do make a deal. Rachel, uh, she she's going to get the mandrakes, mm-hmm. but Jacob has to lie with Leah that night, right? Um, and 
Jacob, we have seen, prefers Rachel. What this could do is that any potential child is going, Leah is going to have that child first. So it's going to keep her ahead essentially in the, the score that's being counted. Uh, the, the text doesn't tell us there's a score, but we are keeping score at home because that matters to us. Anyways, um, Leah and Jacob interact and it's a little bit off-putting what happens here. Leah tells Jacob that he has to go in with her because she has hired him. And this is almost a play back on Jacob being hired by Laban. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of this is because Jacob prefers Rachel. And despite Leah's primacy in childbearing, she's brought forth the first several children. Um, we do find out that Leah is not going to be able to bear any more children. Now, that's not true because she's going to bear three after this. Um, the sons, Isaacar, Zebulun, and that's the fifth and sixth sons from Leah, uh-huh. and a daughter, Dina. And part of her claim is that because Leah gave her maid to Jacob, she has won in, you know, this investment deal, essentially, and God has heeded her more children. Um, or maybe she just kept some of the mandrakes herself and it worked. And what does that have to say? Who Who knows? <laughs> So all the, as all of this is happening, we get to verse 22. And this is where that connection with verse 1 and 2 and the theodicy suffering conversation comes back up because right. we find out as verse 22 begins, God remembers Rachel and her womb is opened. Now, so far, Jacob's up to 11 children, 10 of which are sons. Um, and this happens through three different women, two separate family households, um, and so it's lots to keep track of, yeah. but none so far have been directly from the barren Rachel. And um, Amy, you brought this up last time about right. the seven years and the completion of that process. It almost seemed like that needed to be done before she could start to bear children. And this is where it's kind of like Sarah. Be, the preferred matriarch in that story, her child would subvert all of the firstborns. Now, in that case, it was just Isaac and Ishmael. But it's almost like Jacob has had a bunch of Ishmaels up to this point. Yeah. So we should be hearing reverberations of Sarah and Hagar all throughout this narrative. What's interesting is Rachel's like both. Uh-huh, right. She's like Sarah because her child is going to subvert the firstborns. Um, but she's also like Hagar because in her suffering, God has seen and heard her. Mm-hmm. So there's this interesting culmination of those stories. But finally, Rachel maybe with some mandrake assistance, has a child. And this is who we know as Joseph. Now, in that initial telling of the birth, the name of Joseph isn't in the original Hebrew. Uh, a lot of English translations will will put Joseph in earlier, the name in earlier than when it actually appears. Oh, really? It doesn't come until the second declaration. Um but the only detail we get right away is that Rachel's response is that God has taken away her reproach uh-huh. or reproach, scorn, curse. And that taken away word sounds very similar in Hebrew to Yosef. Oh. It's Asaph. Okay. So some translators put Joseph in earlier, mm-hmm. um, but, but so far it's just focused on Rachel and, and this curse kind of being lifted and then she names the child Joseph. But in naming the child Joseph, she does something else. She requests the addition of another son by Adonai. 
she uses the word yasaf, and, and then Adonai adds on to that. But um, this could be because the birth narratives, they, they seem to have culminated, right? A 12th child, but it's only 11th son. And Adonai has finally added that child to Rachel, culminates what started at the beginning of the chapter. But the language seems to imply that Rachel is hoping for even more children, which would be like a namesake son, one who would kind of be the final stake in the right to the claim to be the matriarch of the covenant and all of that. Mm -hmm. And the Hebrew word for son is Ben. Um, and there is going to be a 12th son, uh, a 12th child, an 11th son. And um, the word used in talking about this, you know, almost this exclamation of the birth of Joseph is Benonoi, which would be a son to me. Oh, okay. Yahweh has given a son to me, mm-hmm. Ben Onoy. Well, that's going to be the name of the next kid. In English, we translate that Benjamin. Okay. And so some people point out that in Joseph being born, she's actually requesting for another son right. being given to her. And that's going to be the name. The actual phrase, give me another son, is going to be that guy's name, Ben Onoy. So are there 12 sons or 12 children? 12, 12 children. Uh, 11 sons, uh-huh, 11 and that's going to pick up at the end of Genesis. Yeah. And then the, you get 12 tribes because Joseph's kids. Oh, that's right. Become Ephraim the, and Manasseh. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, like I said, it's thinking complicated, but mm-hmm. um, so that's kind of the birth part of this chapter. And, and we should read that ending part there in light of what we saw at the beginning and what we talked about last episode. Yeah. But then we get another scene. Uh, the story kind of shifts. And um, this is something that I think maybe people are more familiar with. Um, But the birth narrative etiology, okay, tribal inheritance, that's all done now. Um, It all culminates, by the way, with Rachel's child, and that's important. But after this is done, Jacob's response is that he's ready to go. Like, apparently, this was the awaited for capstone. Mm -hmm. He's paid the bride price and labor. Now he's going to take his family like all of that family, all the wives, all the children, and he's going to return to his home country. He uses an interesting phrase here, let me go, same phrase ah. that is used in Exodus. Yes. Um, and this all, all seems to be part of the deal that both parties, you know, been trying to subvert and manipulate for the last few chapters now. So Laban, this guy who is also a deceiver, mm-hmm responds to Jacob wanting to leave by offering wages instead. Now that's important because that means the work would no longer be a bride price. Right. So he's not going to get some sort of deal, contractual deal at the end of that. He's just getting paid. It also would then separate him from the role of family. He'd be paid as a servant at that point. Okay. So that that's not a good deal for, for Jacob. But if Jacob's at the end of his rope, uh, might be something that he's, He's going to take on, you know, mm-hmm. you can't pass up money when your other options to go home and die. Well, and he's got lots of kids and lots of wives, but he doesn't have money. And at he, least not at this point because he's been working. And he's not, not sure that he has land. He's oh, been right. gone for right. a long time. Sure. Now. So he right. may not even have land. Yeah. Um, and this is where Laban, Laban brings up a conversation that's going to play a role kind of in the rest of this chapter and into the next chapter. And it's about divination. Um, 
So you get this whole scene where Laban has learned that Adonai has blessed him because of Jacob. So this God of Israel apparently shows up to Laban in a dream mm-hmm. um, and things have gone well. Jacob even goes on to claim then that kind of using this inspiration that the cattle have done well because of him, because because of Jacob. Right. There's been an increase in abundance, um, just like the other patriarchs. So you've seen... So it's worth noting out, I'm sorry, I'm kind of backtracking here. It's worth pointing out that Laban, the family of Abraham's ancestry, is not part of the covenant. That's right. So the fact that he would use divinization or, you know, see Adonai as, you know, one of one of the gods of the lands, mm-hmm. that shouldn't strike us as abnormal. He, maybe to put it bluntly, he's not Hebrew. No, and it uh, seems like that you can see that through his whole family. I mean, we'll get yes. into that more and more. Jacob, on the other hand, here with some of these practices. Yeah, Jacob, on the other hand, you know, is pretty obviously a part, a descendant of the covenant. So, just because they're related, the families are connected, doesn't mean that they're part of the same. I I don't want to use religion here because that's not accurate. But no, but different forms of the same. You know, different sects or perhaps or cults of of Yahweh. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of this battle going on where Adonai shows up to Laban. Laban goes, oh. Uh, I've been blessed by this God because of you, Jacob. And Jacob goes, yeah, I know it. Look how much abundance there is. And in the past, with both Isaac and Abraham, a Gentile, somebody outside of the covenant, Mm -hmm. has uh, been blessed in a way because of things that Abraham or Isaac did, even though the things that they did were a little bit, you know, deceitful. And... Abraham and Isaac also leave with much more abundance than when they got there. Oh, absolutely. So so Jacob's fitting that. That was a really long mm-hmm. way to say that Jacob's fitting the pattern. But oh, yeah, he is. The, and he's fitting some of that hero's journey folkloric pattern, too, mm-hmm. where, you know, you have a person who uh, sets out with nothing, and often because they have to flee home because of some conflict, they go to another place, they prosper there, they come home. This all it will fit together, you know, mm-hmm. with that, so... So then um, it gets it gets a bit cheeky for me. Uh, Jacob says, Adonai has blessed you wherever I have turned. And now, okay, so swords are drawn, <laughs> but very subversively. Um, and it feels like, it feels like what sometimes overly religious people do when talking about God's blessing and spirit and work <laughs> and they're indirectly implying that they are the cause of it kind of a humble brag sort yeah of thing, maybe <laughs> but this is also this is also blessing language of the covenant right that the world will be blessed through you so right. jacob says you've been blessed because of me you know that's kind of what abraham was told to do so apparently jacob's just following suit there you know yeah. it's happening but then laban maybe in a moment of honest introspection says that his household won't make it without jacob so Jacob, in response, offers an extra action as payment to Laban so that he can continue in his bride price arrangement, which means he can leave with all of those wives and children and they will be his, not Laban's. Right. So he says, I'm going to do one more thing to maybe make amends here with Laban, uh, but also maintain that I will be my own household. Turns out Jacob's just going to be deceptive again. Uh, so it looks like it's going to satisfy both parties, but he's also going to benefit from this. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the scene where some 
Mendelian tactics are used for animal reproduction that a lot of 21st century folks aren't, we can't relate to this. Very few people have actually seen a, a, a livestock animal born, let alone reproducing. So we need to kind of back up and go, what's going on here? Because I've heard a lot of people preach on this. Mm-hmm. And man, they're just pulling stuff out of hats, trying to make sense of like, and see, God really wants you to replicate DNA structures. I'm, I'm just making that up. I was going to say, yeah. wow, really? <laughs> it, it, I've just, I've never heard somebody preach on this, which I guess I haven't heard it a ton. I've never heard somebody preach on this where it was like, wow, that was really insightful because I don't know that we know what to do with it. This is a weird thing. I mean, here you go again with, we may have a clash here of, and and it is a fair thing to say. There's like some, what would be scientific, even though he may not have understood the principles behind it, he still understood the fact that if you're going to breed stronger animals, you're going to get stronger animals. But then you have a lot more of that same sympathetic magic going on here. Yeah, so let's just look at the surface of of what happens. He's going to pass through the flock. Okay, Okay, remember, Jacob is a person of the flock. He's been described this way since he was born. He's an expert shepherd. Um, And and the the surface-level intention is that he's going to make the flock flourish just as he did with the cattle. Right. right? He's going to also make them abundant. Mm -hmm. And so the context is he's going to remove the spotted and speckled sheep and the black lambs and also the spotted and speckled goats. Mm -hmm. And the catch is that Jacob is not going to keep any of the purebred. So he's going to go interact with this. Animals are going to be born. And he doesn't get to keep any of the purebreds. He's just helping out Laban's flock. Um, But he is going to keep the spotted and speckled ones. The other part of this deal is that if Jacob is found with any any of these... uh, some. Maybe I shouldn't say purebred, but solid colored, solid colored animals, yeah, which would have been preferred the solid colors. because of this like heterozygote issue. Mm-hmm. And uh, if he's found with any of those, then Laban's going to be able to call him out for stealing them. Right. Okay. So it's Jacob has to difference. interact with this very subtly. Um, and then we even find out that Laban holds some of those back. Like, Hey, I'm going to set you up on this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Jacob does some weird stuff. He does. And I think this is interesting, too. This also goes back to some of those folkloric um, motifs that we've seen, because this is what he does is what they call prenatal imprinting. And so he takes these sticks and he makes them striped by cutting pieces of bark out to make them almond white and branches. black. Almond branches. And we're probably, we've probably heard that before, the oh. almond branches that Jacob uses. Sure, right? okay. Yeah. So that's probably significant. But the fact that he makes them striped and he sets them up in front of the places where the animals are breeding. And the idea behind that is that what animals or anyone sees when they are conceiving or when they are pregnant will imprint upon the fetus or the child that is born. And that's a belief that people have had even about human beings. And even somewhat today, some people think that this is possible, Um, not scientifically, but it's an idea. And so that's kind of what he's doing here in an effort to make those animals have speckled and spotted babies. So in order to, you know, by seeing those speckled and spotted sticks, that will make the mothers produce speckled and spotted babies. And again, is this science? No, it's not. But it is something that people did believe at one time and sometimes still do. And the whole, 
the whole component of this that's important is that Jacob is going to be deceitful. Right. Because the other part that happens is uh, Jacob puts a, a three-day distance between him and, and the household. Mm-hmm. And so very easily it could be he breeds the speckled with the speckled and right and uh, breeds some of the, the pure coat with the speckled. Because what ends up happening is most of the animals born right. are speckled and spotted. The other interesting thing about this that may have something to do with it is the fact that back then coat color was very significant and sometimes in kind of an uh, oracular way where they would use these as a divination source. So it could even be that Laban was using those colored animals to indicate to him different things about, like he says, he uses divination to see that Jacob yeah. was blessing him. So he could have either done that by unusual coat color, or he could have done it by sacrificing the animal, cutting it open, looking at entrails. That was something else that they did. But yeah. the significance of colored animals and the colors that they have it was important. And, you know, we still see some of that today. I mean, people are afraid of black cats because they think that that coat color is something unusual, you know, or, or it has something to do with, in some cases, evil magic. So, right. Whatever, whatever way we approach this, ultimately what needs to happen is that Jacob intentionally manipulates the situation. So yes, whether that's yes, through sympathetic does. magic it or does. through divinization um, or through just folkloric ideas about, you know, primitive science. Mm-hmm. Um, or the, uh, another thing that could be happening here is he finds out which which of the flock are the strongest, sure. mates them with speckled and spotted because the recessive gene of that is going to come through more. That's very possible. And now he's going to get mm-hmm. the strongest animals. Yeah, if it happened to be that his male goat, he had a particularly good stud that happened to be speckled, that's the one he wants. So and, he's like, yeah, I'll take the speckled one because, you know, that ram is a good one. Right. In in. So where Laban thinks he's going to end up with all of the better flock, mm-hmm. Jacob ends up with it. And, and yeah. all of that to say, and Jacob did it on purpose. He knew what he was doing. Yeah. He tricks his way to wealth. We even kind of see that in the names of Rachel and Leah. Because the translation of their names, Leah means wild heifer and Rachel means you lamb. And so it's almost like there's sort of this sly wink to the fact that there's a reversal here. So Laban fooled Jacob with Rachel and Leah. Now Jacob's going to fool Laban by taking the best of his quality flock. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of this, the so Isaac and Abraham situations are incredibly similar, how they trick mm-hmm. their way to wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of this, Jacob's kind of fallen in line with what the patriarchs do. Right, yeah. And now that he has his family, he's he's headed back home, just like when, you know, Abraham's coming out of Egypt to head back home and he comes back with a lot more stuff. That's right. Jacob will be too now. Yeah. Um, and so that kind of ends, it it's kind of takes us to, oh, one narrative is ending here and something's about to change. Yeah. And uh, Genesis 31 is going to be a chapter where that transition actually happens. And Jacob is finally going to head back home after decades uh, of being gone. And uh, what looks like the end of a story is just the start of a whole other part of Jacob's story. Yeah. Um, and remember, Jacob's narrative is the longest out of any of the patriarchs. I, Isaac barely got any playtime. Poor guy. But Jacob's is long. And so this is like act two. That's and right. There's a bunch more left. Oh, yeah, me. there's at least Act 3 and 4 here. So that is how basically Jacob's family comes into existence. It's a bit tricky, a bit complicated, a bit messy. 
Um, but that's the foundation of the 12 tribes. And that's going to continue to play out throughout Genesis. But now Jacob has to take on another issue. First, he has to finally release himself of Laban. That hasn't happened yet. Um, but then he has to actually get back home. Um, and Genesis 31 is going to be the chapter where all of that begins to take shape.